there is no difference between us. There's the minutia, but as humans, there's not a whole lot of difference in terms of we're all going to experience pretty much the similar emotions. We're all going to experience some kind of traumatic event or events because that's yeah. just how life is. We're all going to go on some kind of healing journey, even if it's during our last breath on this mm -hmm. world. We're all going to experience loss and joy and happiness and wonder. Hey everyone, I'm Claude Silver and I am an emotional optimist. For me, there's absolutely no false or toxic positivity in emotional optimism. It is simply an awareness that we have the capacity to influence how we feel and how we think. And that even in our darkest times, we know that the light is actually always there. So join me as I ask each and every one of my guests what emotional optimism means to them. excited to get into your head and learn more about you. And one thing that I noticed is that in your interviews on your podcast, you're really fond of asking people about their origin story. And so I did a little bit of digging and I want to know about your origin story, but I have a few specific questions if that's okay. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Okay. I noticed about you that part of your origin story was the desire to be a movie director at one point in your life, which is so specific and unique. And I'd love to know where that came from and what that was about for you. It's thank you for the question because it is so specific. I think, you know, I started going to movies young with my parents and got in and really just got into the um the stories for sure. Yeah. And really, really, really enjoyed that. And at the same time, my dad had an eight millimeter and he took a lot of home movies. And so while I was enjoying going to the movies as a kid. And, you know, whether or not that was Star Wars or the Empire Strikes Back or whatever was going on during my my early childhood, we were doing eight millimeters on the same, you know, on the same time. And so, mm -hmm. he, he would, you know, my brother and I would just dress up in like Jets jerseys or whatever. And my dad would take these movies of us and uh, no sound. So it was just us. And then I got a hold of the eight millimeter and started to take my own movies and started to try to put together stories and, and storylines within the eight millimeter, you know, format. And that's literally how it happened. That was it. And I continued taking um, uh, film throughout my twenties, did screenwriting classes and, and had different eight millimeters. I always kept with that. I love that. Yeah. And and now I just collect the cameras. I don't do anything with them. But Okay. Uh, I was just going to ask, is, is there a way that you find like that creative outlet now for yourself? Well, it's very different. I think the only thing I could even say that could come close to that is playing with Shalom and playing, you know, uh, whether or not we're playing Barbies or surf Barbies, or she has all these farm animals and we create stories and tea parties. So I use a lot of imagination with her and I love it. And I, I never knew I would, but I rely on that for mm -hmm. sure. And then probably drawing with her, you know, nice. I, I really have never thought about that. Um, 
And then I think the only other way is really researching and putting things together in my in my notebooks, in my mind, whether or not I'm researching poems or I'm researching philosophies or psychologies, and I have 80 tabs up on the same things because I, I know there's a marriage there somewhere. Or creating more Spotify playlists. Like that for me sure. is very, very similar to storytelling for me. I love that you just talked about research and the context of a creative outlet, because I don't think that that's the first way I would think to describe research, but I know what it feels like to be like, I'm curious about this thing. Like, I wonder why this exists. And the experience of going down the Google rabbit hole of like, what exists? I want to know, like, why, you know, what content is there about this so that I can learn? It is creative. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm really glad you asked me that question because it, it is a way for me to map things together and find patterns for things mm-hmm. internally and then make sense of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Another piece of your origin story that I've been curious about is, you know, present day, I hear you talk about how it's flabbergasting that we can go to work and forget that we're human beings, you know? But I know that for a long time, I was sort of in that like, almost robotic sense of like, this is just what you have to do. And you get your paycheck and you pay your student loans. And like, this is just what adulting is. So how do you think that, like what part of your origin story has helped you to be awake in that way or like aware in that way? Like, I just kind of want to hear maybe a little bit about your spirit story. Yeah. So what I want to say before I even get into it is, I, like most human beings on this earth, definitely have had desire to be liked, mm-hmm. have had desire to um, you know, make friends and all of that. So I want to just put that out there and now you'll you'll see why I put that out there. Okay. I um for the longest, longest, longest time really thought I was missing a chip in my head. Hmm. I really felt defunct. I felt defective is the word. I truly, truly did. And especially in school, not when it came to making friends and socializing, but I just never really felt like I fit in to Mm. the world in many, many ways. I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Um, and I found my own coping mechanisms. And I found my own ways within myself to um, remain grounded, which is Mm -hmm. fantastic. I really have always maintained a a strong pilot light. But while all of that was happening, and even into my 20s, I didn't think I was going to amass to anything. Hmm. I didn't think you and I would be sitting here chatting in 30 years time. (laughs) I didn't think that I would be so humbled to have people reach out and want to know what my point of view is on office culture or how can we show more empathy in the workplace. I didn't expect any of this because I didn't think I had anything Mm. to offer. And that's the real, real truth. So Mm. going into workplaces, I didn't conform because I already felt not conformed. I already felt un enable to conform, if that makes sense, enable. I don't know if that's the uh, the right word. 
So I always, yeah, I always felt like I could show, I could let my freak flag fly because that's, that's what I had. Hmm. Um, Hmm. And it wasn't, you know, I knew that I wasn't going to be the smartest in a workplace. I wasn't going to be the prettiest in a workplace. I wasn't going to be the best dressed in a workplace. All of these things that I know other people have anxieties about. Mm. I knew that I wasn't going to want to sleep with my boss or date anyone in the workplace. That was just who I was. And I was also in my twenties, you know, discovering my sexuality and stuff like that. So while, while there was Claude trying to figure out, whoa, you're, you have a defective chip or you're missing a chip. There was also this other side of Claude that was like, well, this is who I am and I can't be like you. So I'm just going to be like me, Hmm. Um, which worked well, which worked out really, really well, especially as I got into my late thirties and early forties, when I had much more peace in my life. Yeah. And acceptance. What do you think contributed to that peace that you found later? Um. Well, I think the one, the the very, very major one was uh, moving to London right before I turned 40 Hmm. by myself for a job, put everything in storage in San Francisco and really started again at 40 Hmm. and not knowing anyone. That's, That's late to start again, if you think about it. And while we all speak the same language in London, it's still very much a different culture. Um, I spent a lot of time by myself, riding buses, listening to music, just really starting to mm. be able to take emotions that were coming up for me. And, and I would literally watch them float down the river wow. in my head. It was a yeah. vision I had. And I think that was um, a big part of me reborn or the reemergence that the phoenix took flight again mm-hmm. in my life and really hasn't stopped since 40. I mean, what I heard you say is the ability to sit with yourself and be okay in that quiet. You know, I had to come to that understanding as well that like my need to constantly be busy, my need to constantly be texting or on the phone with someone or connected to someone like a dear friend was willing to say the words to me, what are you hiding from? And I was like, Ooh, I can't unhear that. Like I I need to be able to just sit and allow whatever it is that's here to just be here. You know, there might not be anything to be afraid of, you know, and (laughs) allowing those feelings to come up, you know, and really be released is just so healthy. I'm so grateful that you were able to do that for yourself because you've had, I hope, you know, such a beautiful impact in the world, like your willingness to be brave and, take that leap and do something that I'm sure felt scary refilled you in a way that allowed you to give hope to a lot of people. Thank you. Thank you very much. It gave hope to myself Mm -hmm. as a person where we started this conversation was I didn't really think I would amount to much. So if I look at my late twenties and thirties, I did a lot. I, you know, I ran, ran an outdoor adventure company and had a surfing school and taught surfing, you know, 270 days a year for five years. I mean, I did a lot, but it wasn't what the world says is a lot. Mm. And when I finally 
when I finally got to London and I, there was no one to please. There was no relationship mm. to go after. There was no one to call, mm. you know, I was still for, for quite a while and then yeah. made some incredible friends, but as Claude still, yeah, you know, and um, I had a lot to prove to myself. Once I got there, I wanted to really prove mm. that I could tell stories. I was a strategist and that I mm. could make friends and, you know, all of the, you know, could travel alone and go to concerts alone and all of those things mm. that, I kind of, you know, maybe people do in adolescence or in early twenties, but I kind of missed. And so I, I've always considered myself a late bloomer. I really, really do. Mm. And I'm, I'm happy with that. I used to think it was underdog, but it's not underdog. It's literally, I bloom later. I mean, I've had my, our first child was born when I was 49. Wow. I bloom later. Uh, I came into this role later in life. So I, I appreciate that. Well, I think it's interesting because I hear so often in myself and just the world and people around me, this fear that they're not the right age for something. Either they're too young or they don't have enough experience or now they're too old and they're over-experienced and they can't get paid for something. It feels like maybe there's like this sweet spot for like four months when you're 36 where all the good things are supposed to happen. <laughs> so much, So much of life I feel like is just allowing ourselves to breathe and realize like I am at the perfect time and the perfect yeah. place for whatever is meaningful to me right now. That's like, it. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I'm very lucky. I didn't grow up with social media. I mean, I, I'm mm. 53. I was born in 1969. So we didn't, we didn't have that. You know, I, 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 I had, didn't have to look at a screen and compare myself all day. I had other things to look at, mm -hmm. but it was, um, it was very, you know, life was very different. It was very, very different. And when it comes to work, I, we were just expected to put our heads down and do the work and then mm -hmm. leave and go have a life, which is, that was normal for my generation. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because I do, I did learn about you while I was researching before this interview that you are older than me. But when I was processing that information, I was like, huh, I'm 34. and I just like felt surprised by that information. I don't know. But yeah, I certainly have never been an adult. I've never been an adult in a world without iPhones or without social media. And so certainly there are just parts of my experience that are like really different. Because They're really different. Yeah. And you know that, so we're 20, almost 20 years apart. And while that doesn't really matter as adults. Yeah you know, knowing that I was 30 when you were 10, like life was happening to both mm -hmm. of us at differently and at different speeds mm -hmm. at that point. You know, yeah. that, anyway, it's just a number, but it is fascinating to me to think about life experience sometimes. Absolutely. And I love that you validated the experience of like what it's like to constantly feel like you're comparing yourself to everyone else and need to learn how to claim joy for yourself. And like, for me, that has been in the form of maybe taking a stupid risk and believing that I can like get where I want to be professionally without relying on social media, because it just has felt like this unhealthy burden. I mean, so we have that negative thing in my generation, but we also are standing on the shoulders of the people in the generation before us who 
helps so much with equal rights and women's rights. And so there are, you know, parts of my story that you paved the way for in a way that I'm very grateful for. Thank you. Thank you. And, and, and those people that I stand on too, for sure. But that's the thing. And I, and I think you and I can, I know we relate to this. We're just standing on each other's shoulders. We're just holding Mm -hmm. hands, walking. And you know, we're just walking each other home. Yes. That's, that's what I, that's a very, that's an equalizer and a normalizer for me. When I think about, there is no difference between us. There's the minutia, mm-hmm. but as humans, there's not a whole lot of difference in terms of we're all going to experience pretty much the similar emotions. Mm-hmm. We're all going to experience some kind of traumatic event or events because that's just how life is Mm -hmm. we're all going to go on some kind of healing journey even if it's during our last breath on this Mm -hmm. we're all going to experience loss and joy and happiness and wonder anyway i could go on and on and on. i I would love to hear it what this (laughs) is making me think of is um i heard you say in something of yours that i watched that, um, okay, I wrote it down so I would get the quote right. Oh, if you've been invited to that meeting, you're there for a reason, so speak. And the connection here for me is just this idea of like the deep truth, the real truth is that we are equals. Yes. The fake truth that we all pay so much attention to is all these hierarchies and power infrastructure and whatever. And that's as real as we let it be. It's as real as we give energy to, you know, Um, but I've just, you know, been reflecting on that idea and, you know, so much of us have just been steeped in the belief that there are people who are allowed to speak and people who are not allowed to speak. And here's how you can tell if you're one of those people. And it has to do with all of these things that make me want to barf when I say them, you know, um, but regardless of like the, the depth of like how much we cling to that, because we've just seen it forever. And we all just believe that it's true. There is this deeper truth that's like, we're just walking each other home. You know, that's like what the deep truth is. So I'm so curious, coming from the trauma-informed perspective that I know you come from as someone with a background in psychology, how do you implement that equal, we're walking each other home vibe at Vayner and help people like step into that power in the room? Yeah, thank you for asking. For me, it is. it just comes down to knowing that I'm no better than anyone. I'm no worse than anyone. So I have that. And holding space from that place that I am here merely to hold the conversation. Maybe I can guide it a little bit. I am absolutely here to provide safety, not fear. Mm-hmm. And I know that the conversation I'm having with someone isn't about Claude unless they ask about Claude, but it's about them and their deep truth. That's Hmm. the thing. And at work, you rarely scratch that surface. You rarely go to that depth, right? Unless you have, unless you have the ability to have one-on-one connection with people or a solid group connection where there's enormous amounts of trust and Mm -hmm. vulnerability. And so in a conversation that I'm having with someone, there's, there's no reason for me to withhold something about myself that might make them feel more seen. 
mm-hmm. or like they matter. There's, you know what I mean? I'm not going to withhold because then I am othering. Sure. So how do you um, help that permeate throughout other leaders at the company? Or, I mean, Vayner is around 2000 people. Is that right? About, yeah, 16, 1700 people now. Um, the way That's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. <laughs> but I've so seen a lot of other templates of how it can work. Yeah. You know? It's a lot of osmosis training. It's a lot of spending time with leaders. It really is. Gary, of course, spends time with leaders and really talking to people about it is really just creating safety, eliminating fear, being a good person. We want this to be just a great place to work. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I was just having a meeting with some leaders before, before you and I got on here and we were talking about giving shout outs to to people in the company. And I said, we have to remember to give shout outs to the back office too, to the legal team that makes sure it's okay to use that photography, to the person that cleans our dishes in the office, Mm -hmm. to someone who is making sure you get paid every other week. Mm -hmm. Forget that. And so you know, having those enough conversations with enough leaders, it gets into the water. And beating that drum consistently, it sounds like you're saying. Yes, yes, yes. There has to be just as much consistency as there is intention. Yeah, thank you. That actually is a phenomenal part of the equation because then you can get to fulfillment or to happy and healthy employees and all that stuff. So yeah, and then of course you need to be aware of the impact, right? There's the the consistency and intention and impact. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. So I recently heard um, Marshall Walker Lee, who's in leadership at Atlassian, talk about how company culture does not exist. It only exists at the team level. And I don't mean team in a metaphorical sense. I mean, the people you work with directly. Hmm. And I'm curious, like, I there's a lot of facets of your job and I won't pretend to understand all of them, but it seems like maybe a core tenant is building a brand for VaynerMedia around culture, mm-hmm. like that people is the brand, you know, like yeah. that's who we are. Yeah. Um, so how would you respond to that notion that culture can only be established like at the micro level? That's it, a tricky one. Thank you for reading it. So that leads me to think about tribalism and leads me to think about enormous amounts of conformity. If it's at the micro level, then I think that everyone is seeing something through the same type of eyes rather than getting a whiff of what that person feels the culture is like that works on that other team or that department in that area. So I, I agree to an extent and I disagree. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a little too myopic and I don't think, I don't think that's what we're doing at Vayner. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll put it that way. We spend so much time on the connective tissue and making sure we are helping people navigate here, there, and everywhere Mm -hmm. so that it's not myopic, so that it's not so one belief. Yeah. And I have no idea what it's like to work at at Atlassian. So if anyone from Atlassian watches this, this is no shade to you. But I I believe that they, my impression is that they have like 50,000 some odd employees or something, and they may not. 
but some companies do. They have lots and lots and lots. And so I certainly understand that subcultures develop by accident. And this is one reason why I think it's so exciting to watch Vayner become the honey empire. The vision is happening and it's it's so fun. Because you hold that vision from the beginning. You know, this is why I'm so often telling entrepreneurs, you're not too small right now to start thinking about culture. You know, you're not too early to start worrying about how will we handle conflict? What is our brand standard for handling conflict and feedback? You know, you're not too small to worry about that because you're going to start growing and then all of a sudden you'll be too busy and you'll have a different excuse or a different reason why it's not the right time. And all of a sudden you'll have a conflict and you won't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And it will create drama and uncertainty and it will create ripples in the water that other people will feel. It's it's intense. Building and cultivating and co-cultivating culture is, I believe, the most important thing that is needed in a workplace. And in a place like Axiom or these other places where they have 50,000 people, I totally get it. That's who you see. You wouldn't know who the CEO was or what they like for breakfast if they were right in front of you. Right. And that's different at other places. Um, you know, we know that Gary loves blueberries, for example. Okay. Yeah. So. Uh, fun fact for me to know now. Fun fact. Um, it is, it's a fun fact, but I go, I'm really thinking about the quote that you just read that I said, if you're invited to that meeting, you're there for a reason to speak up. Mm-hmm. And yes, hierarchy gets in the way and limiting beliefs get in the way and this and that and the other. However, you have a responsibility. You, any employee has a responsibility to cultivate this culture just mm-hmm. like I do. And that's part of it. Speaking up, sharing your ideas, you know? And mm-hmm. so how do we create a place where people feel like they can share their ideas. No idea is wrong. And it doesn't mean they have to, the idea is accepted as what we're going to do to march forward, but mm. there's a place for them that they can be, they can take up space. That's what I'm saying. Yes. Oh, that's gorgeous. I love that so much. I was speaking to a group in Pittsburgh last week or the week before. And um, in the Q&A, somebody said, um, they brought up the issue of speaking truth to power and that, you know, it's one thing to, you know, on their own team of people who are all in the hierarchy equals, you know, but it's another thing if, you know, I need to say this to the owner of the company. And, you know, I said, well, I think in my experience, when I've been willing to just be brave and say that thing with honesty, clarity, and kindness, you know, equal equally mixed in there, that you really win a lot of respect for yourself by being willing to just say the thing, you know, and it turned out that the owner of the company was in the room, which I did not know. And he would ask the person like, are you having this problem here? Because he said, I know that we've had different issues where, you know, something blows up and we don't fulfill for a client. And then I'm trying to figure out why did this happen? And someone says, I was scared to tell my manager. I was afraid that, you know, if I said this, it wouldn't go over well. Meanwhile, the manager is like, what? That would not, you know, so what I think is interesting and the reason that I bring this up is that there is so often a disconnect between leadership intentions and their desire to hear those ideas. Those, even if we can't move forward with them right now, mm-hmm. the desire to hear them, the, des- the desire to hear the feedback and hear like, where's the problems? What am I not seeing? 
but then their people are not feeling that sense of permission or invitation. Yeah. So it's a tough disconnect. I'm curious if you have any advice for um, a leader who is resonating with that problem, like how they might build that bridge. Yeah, I, 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 that leader absolutely needs to spend time with their managers, with the managers on that team that are, you know, quote unquote, under them. And in, instilling that everyone has voice, whatever their whatever their ethos is, that ideas can come from anywhere. That mm-hmm. you know, we always want to make people feel seen and that they matter. And so, listening is important. Listening to learn, and I think when you get to in, in those more junior levels, which we all start in junior, can't stand that word, but um, I know what you mean. Yeah. We all start and there is a fear of opening your mouth because I don't know if I'm going to say the right thing. Will I get laughed at? Will someone give me that look, that stare? I mean, that's just, that's human. Mm-hmm. human. But you yourself are not going to get any points for holding back. Right. That's the real deal. So I think that leader needs to spend time with with the managers and saying and instilling how important it is. Management is a very difficult thing. You're either in it, you you can do it well, or you can't. You have to care about your people. Mm. You have to care about what they're working on outside of work also. Mm. What do they come into the office with every day? And that's not easy, you know? It's not easy to put your ego aside all the time and be like, what's going on for you? So you just built beautifully to one of the questions I wanted to ask you about. So, you know, I hear... um, this idea is out in the world that there are that there's a kind of person who can be a good manager and a kind of person who can't. And truthfully, I hold a little bit of a different perspective because I think how it works is that what there really are are like two groups of people, but the two groups of people are folks who in this moment are connected to love and folks who in this moment are connected to fear. And the truth is that all of us spend time in each of those piles every day. And I think that good leaders and good managers are people who are just intentional, in, intentionable, <laughs> intentional about consistently like cultivating those habits to make sure that as often as possible, they are connected to love, which I don't know how that word is going to resonate with your audience. I know love, people don't like to talk about it, but to me, you are the heart woman. So I feel like it's okay to say to you. <laughs> I'm going to be fine like, with it. It's expected, I think. Yeah. And I, you seem to be someone who has really cultivated those habits of as consistently as possible that more often than not, you are connected to love rather than fear or scarcity. And I know that it can easily trigger imposter syndrome when someone's like, clearly you're doing this very, very well and perfectly and we can all learn from you. So without active, without pulling that lever by accident, like I would love to know, like, what are some of those habits? Do you have an evening routine or a morning routine? Or like, what is it that you're doing to stay connected consistently? I mean, I think that's the magic question because I don't really know what to tell you other than, other than I've, I have, a strong inner voice. I have a strong inner dialogue going on. It's not an inner fight. It's just a, it's connection. I would say, I really, really believe in love. I really, really believe in kindness. I really, really believe in saying thank you. I really, really believe in there is a higher power, whatever someone wants to call that. And for me, so much of my 
happiness, so much of my purpose, that's what I would say, involves doing something that's bigger than Claude. Mm, yes. And, I, you know, I, I didn't know that uh, as a young person. You know, you learn that. When I went on an out, this 93-day Outward Bound course when I was 19, which I talk quite a, quite a lot about, I did that for Claude, but it was so much bigger than Claude, especially when you're spending 18, 21 days in the Grand Canyon and you're like, I am a speck of sand here. Yeah. So I think I, um, I, you know, those are my, those are my beliefs and I don't, stray, there's no reason for me to stray for them, from them, you know, the belief mm-hmm. in love and the belief in kindness and generosity and generosity of spirit. And so I think that really is what grounds me. Um, mm-hmm. I don't have any other rituals than at this moment, spending time with my kids, you know, listening to music when I can, I'm really involved in work and, mm-hmm. and, and trying to bring as much joy to people through joyful service, through acts mm-hmm. of service, really. So I appreciate the honesty of that answer because it would have been really easy for you to be like, yeah, meditation. I drink about eight cups of water as soon as I wake up in the morning, uh, run about five miles twice a day. You know, like, nope, nope, <laughs> none of that. None of that. I drink a Diet Coke a day, maybe two. You know, I love pretzels as a snack. <laughs> good um yeah well thank you I was curious thank um you. and it does sound like if even if it's not a ritual something that you've mentioned a couple different times is like escaping either to nature or to a place that is where you are able to be alone with yourself yeah and a lot of times as you know with kids that's inside yeah it's inside. I mean, sometimes I'm not in the shower alone. So, <laughs> you know, you always have great shower thoughts. Well, I, sometimes I'm not in the shower alone anymore. So I have and- this great picture from my first year of motherhood. Um, and I don't know if you know this about me, that both of my children came um, when they were 18 months and three and a half. They came, they're biological okay. siblings to each other, but they were, I did not have them as babies. Okay. And, um, so we just jumped right into the, like, they've got ideas and opinions and feedback and preferences and all this. And I learned so quickly, like how valuable, like bathroom time is. I (laughs) I have this picture that I took from the toilet of both, like there's four hands coming under the door where they're just like, why are you locked in this room by yourself? And I'm like, it's like the zombie apocalypse. I love it. The zo- it is. It's like, hello, help me, help me. But they're juicy and I'm I'm a better person because of being a parent. And I, yeah. you know, five years ago I wouldn't have been able to tell you that. Four years ago I couldn't tell you that. Yeah. You know. Well, I assume we have just a few minutes left, but I wanted to hear you speak to um another quote that I have of yours, <laughs> where you say that um Vayner's culture is fueled by people operating at the top of their game. And I love that. And I also am someone who is like everybody else living through a time we're coming out on the other side of a pandemic and war around the world, not just Ukraine. You know, that's certainly something that's top of mind for me and my husband's company employs a lot of developers in Ukraine and and so many things, Roe and gun violence in this country almost every day. And it just feels for a culture that has thrived on developing empathy in people 
that this could be a very challenging time as far as compassion fatigue. And so I'm just curious, like, how do you, how do you serve people? How do you hold space for that and encourage people to also be healthy in the middle of all of this? Yeah. Um, funny, not where I thought that question was going to go. So I'm going, but I'm, I love the question. Um, the, how do I serve? I mean, how, how do I keep showing up is this is what I'm called to do. This is what I love doing. This is what my life, my life's purpose is and everything I've done before has happened because I was supposed to be holding people's heart. Yeah. And helping them hold their own heart. That's what I truly think. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that the more I spend time with people and the more other people with a heart to help and this this similar DNA spend time with people within the walls of Vayner, it spreads. It does. And um, I I don't know if I've seen a lot of compassion fatigue. I've seen a lot of burnout where mm. people are just, they are just tired and myself included mm-hmm. a lot to be there's a lot to take in every single day a lot of raw emotion and so i you know we we empower people to take time off we empower people to make sure you know energy management is so important i always say try to do 90 minutes to 2 hours of work and then get up away from your computer and go take a walk for 15 minutes that's great that's gorgeous yeah that's so good and also knowing your energy, like my energy is great until about three in the afternoon. And then I really have a hard time, you know, I mean, I I make it, but I need a Diet Coke at that point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. I've told my kids multiple times, I'm a bridge troll until I have coffee. So if you've said words to me until then, that's on you. You know yeah. what the boundaries are. Yes. Yes, totally. So that, you know, that's it. And I think Vayner's culture is fueled by people at the top of their game. What I actually mean by that isn't the top of their game and they're the best salesperson or they're the best new business or the best art director. It means they are with intention, consistently showing up every day in that full self, in that full spirit, in their full voice. Mm -hmm. They can consistently be their authentic self because if they can do that, my job is a heck of a lot easier. I love that you shared more. And I wish I would have just asked what you meant by that from the beginning. I was thinking like in my notes, I had written that with everything that's happening right now, the top of my game, like my A game right now feels like what my C plus game was in 2019. You know, like, yeah, of course. Yeah. And that's why I just wanted to say that it's not, I mean, yes, sure. You, of course we, need people who are ambitious and who can, who can succeed. Mm-hmm. And we're a business. Yeah. We need to stay open. Uh, but there's only so much a human can do if other parts of them are, are not, if the puzzle pieces hasn't, haven't connected for some time because they're crushed with anxiety or crushed with burnout or all of that. So being human, it's messy. We're exquisitely messy, 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 myself included. Mm-hmm. And that messiness is something I enjoy being around mm. and um, and trying to you know help someone navigate through just as I, I believe I have had a lot of support in my life navigating through some of my mess that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. 
Well, I could ask you about 94 more questions, but (laughs) we'll be be back. Yes. (laughs) Thank you so much for doing this and taking the time to just really think about Claude. Yeah. Well, thank you for your willingness to indulge me. I've been looking forward to spending this time with you. (laughs) You're the best. Thank you. Thank you.